This is Dan Palmer at Making Permaculture Stronger, and today I'm so delighted to have Rosemary Morrow with me, a friend, colleague, and mentor, and we're going to be having a, a conversation exploring various topics. It's lovely to have you here, Ro. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Dan. I love coming here. I love meeting up with you and the family, and I love our conversations. Off off mic conversations as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is our first on mic conversation. Yeah. It's also um, our first podcast I've ever um, recorded, which is exciting and means it's unplanned and spontaneous and we'll see how it goes. But it's been a while since we've kind of worked together or, or explored the topic of design process. So I was really curious, given, as you know, that's a big focus of mine these days with the Making Permaculture Stronger project to kind of crack open what's been a bit of a black box or, or a kind of a, a gap in, in permaculture in terms of um, the, the discussion around what is permaculture design process and, and um, what's strong about it, what's weak about it, what's happening with it. And I'd love to hear your reflections and, and some of your experiences because not, you've not only been teaching and writing about design process for many decades, but, but um, doing so in a variety of different cultures and places around the world. So, um, yeah, what do, you, what, do you, what do you have to, to tell me? I don't think I've ever realistically put a formal design process in place. And certainly when I look at the Permaculture Design magazine from America, I use that action research model much more in integrated pest management or intelligent pest management. And I do it in some things where I verify and change and tweet. And certainly in my own design work and implementing them, I go through and make changes, which means I start with a much looser design in the beginning Mm -hmm. than other people might do. They might end up with something as fixed as a landscape architect. So many plants at so many spacings to get this result. So there are a couple of things when I think of design process. The design... Process consists of three things. The first is analysis, and this is where I'm far more stringent and far more demanding than I am when people are making designs. So I'm saying to them right at the beginning, get that analysis right. If the water doesn't run there, if the soils aren't like that, if the natural vegetation can't be conserved, your design will collapse. So there is that for a start. So I spend a lot of time getting people to step by step start with their sector analysis and I can get them to fill up the margins of their page on land that they know with up to 50 or 60 details. Not just where does the rain come from, how heavy are the raindrops, how light is it, how long does it last, what's the temperature of the water... Because if you think about it, tropical rain will wash out all your seedlings. And you think, well, the rain comes from here, I'll plant my seedlings. So there you are, you've lost a lot of time and work and you're back to maintenance. So I do a very, very detailed sector analysis, right to wildlife and the birds that fly over and the rats that run through and the wombats or the deer that eat everything and the type of the fence, whether it lets sun in or out. And I do it not as a list, but an asking. So it's a shepherd people through their analysis. And then we start with water. And then we do it all over again. What sort of water have you got? Where does it come from? What is its quality? When does it flow? How does it move? What does it carry? What's its colour? What's its temperature? How much do you use? How do you know you use that much? What would happen in a dry year? And then I pick up on climate and soils and microclimate. I say the microclimate is your unit of design. Because if each part of your mosaic, which is your design, is accurately designed to microclimate, you're going to have a very good result. Mm -hmm. So what I'm thinking about, a lot of people are not even clear about what is a microclimate. So climate, of course, is the elements we use in sector analysis. Microclimate are the things that grow up and impede or enhance our radiation, wind and precipitation. I do it in quite a bit of detail to show how important it matters, but still analysis. And then we end up with some wonderful celebration of forest 
as a perennial system as a basis of permaculture. Mm-hmm. So then the students having done that on their own land, and I'm fairly tough with them because they know it, I can ask them questions and questions, and then, and what happens in winter? And does the frost stay all year on the non-sunny side? And what will happen if you've got thing there? That is long before we get into design. And then we move to the next stage, which is a bigger piece of land, and we do the same process again on an unknown piece. So start on known to unknown, get a really thorough <laughs> grilling on those things and then take them to an unknown piece of land and keep presenting with the same data. I Mm. teach fairly orthodox design and I do that on the first day in design methods. Here are your zones, this is what they're about, here are the principles. It's about work, it's about use of resources, it's about recycling, it's about permanence, your zone one much like your orders is fairly impermanent, your zone five is extremely permanent and long scale. So which ones you have to get right or you'll regret it. And we work through that without doing design work. But I can use the language of that when we're talking about analysis throughout. So I don't get them doing design work until they've covered a lot of stuff. And I think the word design is problematic because... I say this analysis, design, and implementation. And they're the three things we do to design a piece of land. I suppose you could call that the whole process. And in implementation, you've got the immediate and the long term, which requires a severe examination of maintenance, or you've just made yourself a prisoner of the land instead of it freeing you up over time. Mm-hmm. So when we start on actually putting zones in, I start with zone five. And so we protect the land either and put in wildlife corridors and round off the edges and try to get something that's it's not possible in some cultures, but you know, ideally, which is going to provide a combination sometimes of windbreak and zone five, but sometimes zone five. So we look very, very strongly at the implication of a zone five for managing soil and water and erosion on land. And then to see the uses of the other pieces of land, we come back to zone zero and zone one. And then they have to place them according to pretty pretty clear directives. You know, the house, for example, must face the sun. It needs to have protection at the back. It needs to have clean water above. It needs to have this below. If you do that, then all the talk we do about creativity in the design process, throw it out the window. Mm. Because the land itself will determine that 90% of the students will end up putting their houses and designing them in very similar ways. But not like little boxes, not like all made of ticky-tacky, just that if you follow those principles and you want long-term comfort and yields sustainable, then you have to, in each zone for safety, you have to have some guidelines and you can check it, or what will happen if this, and what happens if the winds come here, and you know, what will happen if this, and you find that the land itself has fixed them. Um, so we do a lot of work on creativity, but in the end, it's quite a confined process. Then we go back and do zones one and two, even three, but in the meantime, we've protected all our water with vegetation, our roads with vegetation, they can be windbreaks or wildlife corridors. So that we're getting to what Mollison originally talked about, which is farming in clearings in a perennial forest or system. And everything is protected. Mm -hmm. If I really want to shortcut it because of difficulties of um, translation, when we get to those zones, I give them a little mnemonic called NEW. Nutrient, Energy, Water, Work and Protection. So they say, oh, I'm going to put an orchard in here. And I say, right, fine. What are the needs of the orchard? 
satisfy nutrient, energy, water, work and protection before you put a tree in the ground. Satisfy the needs of a chicken, an alpaca or a camel for nutrient, energy, water <laughs> work and protection before you put a camel in place. Because permaculture is littered with people who rushed out and bought the fruit trees and put them in. And I know an experienced teacher who put in some hundreds of trees in the Mediterranean region and got a big drought. I said, well, what happened about your water? He said, oh, it's just so good to get the trees and lost the trees. So by, it's almost a precautionary principle, coming back to needs of an area, not only needs of an animal. So you could say that a, a harvest forest or whatever we call it, a zone four, has needs, but those needs will diminish over time and some of the areas the needs will continue. So an orchard in Australia, its needs for water will continue probably through its life, even if the need gets less. If you think of an orchard in northern eastern North Europe, where 10 days without rain, probably you put it in, may not even water it in, so that you're looking at how those things you do to make sure that you get survival and production are met either by for the system to work or for the an element to work. I don't work that strongly in elements, but I am looking at and then making sure those parts that are going to give you the yield because you've been protective, like steep slopes rivers, tops of mountains, ensuring that they're done, that the rest can thrive. Because, mm. right, so when we get there, we haven't really gone through a very textbook look, but we're building in with increasing threat, threat of climate change. We're building in this protection and buffering mechanism according to the needs of an area. What's the needs? Before you put a crop into zone three, what does it need? Mm-hmm. Pest management. No. It needs harvest place. It needs this. It needs protection. Where are you going to get it? Mm-hmm. So that you're not trying to say, I'm going to plant hazelnuts here and something there and then work it out. And so needs analysis is what I do quite a lot. Yeah, hey, I might jump in there because obviously mm-hmm. that, was, that was fantastic and so... So, you know, much to reflect on that. How would, how would it be if I, if I, because at least five kind of key themes or points came out for me, and if you wouldn't mind, could I just mm. repeat my understanding of each one and mm. just have you, and after mm. each recap, just add any comments? So, and um, particularly in terms of what resonates with um, some of the discussions I'm, I'm kind of part of or aware of, of happening around design process. So, one of the things you started with that I found interesting straight off the bat was you mentioned that in your own personal um, design work, you'll tend to, what, what I heard was you, you, you tend not to go straight to a detailed finished design before you start, you know, that you'll actually tend to um, start with something that's a bit more um, at the concept level or, or global in scope without fleshing out the details and, and, and then actually start implementing where you, you the details kind of come out in the wash. Is mm. that right? Because that... that that, the responsiveness um, of, of the land yep. is not predictable on paper. Mm. Yep. Yeah, right on. Or yeah, the wind, which, or yes. the sun, or the speed of growth of that windbreak was less or more than you yep. expected. Yep. Yep. In actual fact, it yep. isn't as the design is. Yep. Oh, yeah, well, it's just great to hear because that's uh, a, a point that, that Christopher Alexander um, makes quite strongly, this idea that, and, and, and that I think has... The idea of prim- a prematurely detailed um, design mm. that's come through the architectural and landscape architectural traditions just doesn't work when you're designing these complex systems in the sense that you, you're inevitably making premature decisions and because you just don't know what the reality is going to be in six months or a year or whatever, um, arbitrariness inevitably enters and then you've got mm. this design that was made prematurely that has a kind of a magnetic, often it's caught up with your ego as a designer, it has a magnetic attraction and you can tend to then implement it as drawn as opposed to what I'm hearing you say, which is you know, implemented as is appropriate mm. inside the unfolding process. 
But also, because nature is so magnificent, every now and again you're going to get something from the seed bank or something from an animal Mm. or a neighbour. My neighbour planted all these New Zealand potosporum, which was a huge pain, and half my design had to be reconsidered. So you cannot just use those boundaries and be fixed and then be disappointed. It's this constant responding to, or the slope turned out to be different, Mm -hmm. or the soils were different, or something happened. It isn't totally predictable. Yeah, 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 and which is a real key theme in a lot of developments in in processes outside of permaculture, like the agile Mm -hmm. approach to software development and this in manufacturing, not every manufacturing, where you, you you do enough to make a sensible first move, and then you're in the game, you get feedback. And you iteratively and adaptively move your way forward. So I was I was delighted that that was kind of the first point you emphasised. You know, that was a gem. Um, is there anything to add on that, or should we move on to? No, the except point? I think that if you're in a very difficult dry land climate or very cold one or high altitude, you have to think more carefully about your perennial species because if you make a mistake there, it's a long time to maturity. Mm, yep. so that it requires far less thought to plant your lettuces and tomatoes than it ever does to put in something that makes a big impact in difficult climate. Yep, yep, mm. yep. Yeah, so, yeah, so, you know, that is... that You're fairly casual but at the same time. In that case, I overplant. Yep. I'd rather take out yep. than have something not grow or not work. Yep, yep. Yeah, you effectively but keep... that mightn't be in my design. Yeah. Yeah, that's but right. But when I get up there, I think, oh, no, if we're going in for a dry summer, I'm going to put more in yep, here. Yep, yep. Or if the wind's like to be more severe than I could measure. Yep. Or the storms are going to increase with climate change. They're going to need protection. Yeah, yeah, yep. So that's yep. not designable. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. We might come back to because one of the other points was sort of about the way you sequence things and starting with perennials or, or, or more permanent features of the system, how you, you, know, you, you want to be less flippant or, you know, more, more careful in how, how they go. And then there's, yeah, that sort of adaptive move that I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, over, I'll plant twice as many stems as, as needs to give myself options in the future. Um, the second thing that jumped out for me when you were speaking before was, was um, and I, I've, I've been conscious of this in your writing and teaching, that you, um, I'd say you emphasise the idea and the importance of the idea of a microclimate mm-hmm. than other permaculture um, teachers and authors I'm aware of. And it was great to have your your definition and your emphasis that really the well, tell me if I got this right, but something like um, it's really core to a sound design is 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 tuning into the the existing microclimates and that they will, you know, the extent to which they the design that comes down the track or that emerges out of that reflects and kind of maps and honors those different microclimates is a big kind of indicator of how good the design's going to be. And and, and your, this idea of a microclimate is um, the way in different sectors, radiation, wind, precipitation, etc., how they interact with stuff on the site to create a pattern of differences. Mm. And it, mm. the core part of the observational phase of design is tuning into or immersing into that pattern of differences mm. or, or, or pattern of microclimates across the site. Um, yeah, any... That, I realised that microclimate was really key to everything, partly because Mollison said it. Uh-huh. It is the unit of detailed design. The yep. rest is broad design. Yep. And when I'm teaching it, I'll just say, look at the floor. Is there a microclimate there? And some say yes to that and say no. You put a brick down, is there a microclimate? Mm-hmm. You add some sun, you add some wind, you add some trees, you yep. add some slope, you put in a pond... You change the texture of the ground from concrete to soil and what's happened to that space. So that getting them to look at those five elements, which is all our systems thinking, isn't Mm. it, Mm. together to Mm. define the microclimate, still hard for people to get and often for translators (coughs) to translate Yes, because it's sometimes new to them. They're learning as they go and they think they haven't quite got it. But being able to take that summation... Of those things that we later examine, so in one structures, yep. we look at soil, we look yeah, at water, yep. we look at the plants and vegetation, we look at slope and aspect as topography, yep. and then we bring them into 
microclimate somewhere. Yep. And yep. they're all now interactive, and that's the crunch, I think, for a systems yep. approach. Yeah, and you could say in a way what I'm hearing is that it's almost like the site analysis phase culminates in tuning mm. to the microclimates. Mm. That everything else kind of leads up to that, mm. and that's that's great. That you know, we do that a little bit as well, using things like a brick and actually using a, a head a head head torch to mm. be the sun and bring out a watering can and etc. And you different slopes from mild slope to yep. a big slope. Yep. And, yep. Yep. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, and that sort of domino. You know, you you introduce a new um, physical object, a tree or mm. a building, and suddenly there's this plethora of, of mm. different microclimates just mm. kind of erupt or spring out of that. That was great. Yeah, oh yeah, and, and it was great to hear you reminding me. I, I was struck by that when I first came across it in your writing. Um, I, I used to think of it as a des, sort of a design by elimination process, but the idea of starting with zone five, mm. which is often, there's often a degree of no of a no-brainer about it. You know, it's mm. like, well, you need to... Um, protectively vegetate your riparian strips or your waterways and and around the um, the perimeter of the property um, and you know suddenly part of the spaces you've, you've got some ideas for that you've roughly sketched it in and then and then moving into the the inner zones and then ultimately ending up with this kind of strip or this bit in between the zone five and and and, and but that that I think when you're beginning, that can be really useful just to get the design process started because it can be very intimidating at mm. first. But I wanted to ask you about because um, um, because really that's about a way of of sequencing mm. the design process in terms of where you focus energy. And um, one question I had was because you talked about sequencing the zones was where uh, access comes into that because of course access is like uh, these like these tentacles these threads that mm. that run through all the zones so do you find that you know as you design zone five you think about access in zone five and then and so on in different zones or or is that a separate step and, and where does it come in that actually, sequence actually <clears throat> i want to go backwards okay i wouldn't put, put the zones in before i'd done water and access okay okay great mm. water and access comes first yes yep. so i wouldn't design a dam for a zone three or an agricultural area to feed that i put it in a dam because it's the right place it might end up in zone five as a wildlife dam yep. or an emergency dam of clean water yep. Yep. or it might end up in zone three or it might end up outside the front door but the appropriate place for water and then that ends up in various places yes. yep. however once you get to your zones you'd have to check in zones two three initially one two three you've got those water sources you need yep. Yep. for the zones yep. and there are other things you can do you can run water for something in long swales and all sorts of things yes. yep. so you wouldn't dare put in anything or decide the use of it until you really had it yeah yeah oh that that's that's good to hear and, yeah. and, and consistent with with my experience i also remember david holmgren um talking about how even though, of course, he, he presents his own analysis of Meliodora, the property he shares with Sue, his partner, he says he doesn't, doesn't he didn't actually consciously use the idea of zones as he designed Meliodora. That he he, he obviously considered water and access and and um, and whatnot. And and in, in, in a way, the zones just fell out. You know, I guess, I guess he was aware of them unconsciously, um, but but certainly dealing with water and access quite early in the piece. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we could explore that more. I, like, I'm personally finding that I'm not consciously not kind of going through the zones. That it's more just about what what's what's the right thing to focus on next. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I wanted to just ask you about the the scale of permanence, which the 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 heuristic mm. design tool from Yeomans in terms of moving from after tuning into climate and um, landform and so on to to moving th from water access through trees. Um, d downwards in permanence. It, it, what's you know? How do you see that as relevant, or does that, is it, is it, you know, has that been a useful tool for you? What's your? I am aware of it. I don't specifically teach it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm inclined to take a broader brush here mm. and say our first choice is perennials, mm -hmm. water, perennials, protection, because I'm working in fairly harsh environments. 
you know, if the temperature is 50 degrees and minus 15, if it's Afghanistan, just talking really about survival and getting mm. that perennial stuff in the ground yep. takes more time than maybe a more new and with an interpreter than a more nuanced course mm. here in Australia. Yep. Yep. So, you know, that could be seen as derelict of me, but it's often all I can do to mm. just mm. being able to discuss how those things will work and work yep. for them. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great to know. Um, yeah, well, who knows? Maybe we'll come back to the, the topic of, of sequencing the design. But you made a comment about um, creativity, which I thought was fascinating, and and um, the the idea of thro- in a way throwing creativity out of the window, which is, what, yeah, which is great because I think often we inherit this idea of the designer, you know, the design expert, the glamorous designer that comes in, the spotlights are on, the cameras are rolling or whatever, and, and, and the job of the designer is to input or insert their creative genius. And that's what creativity is, is, you know, something you impose from outside. But, of course, what you were saying is that a, that a thorough and sound permaculture design process is about kind of getting that out of the way and letting the site and its nuances dictate what actually happens where, uh, you know... It, I think there can be a creativity, but in quite a different sense. You know, you can, there can be creative solutions and, and, co- and configurations are created, but um, but it's about where the, where, the, where the source is. So that was that was cool to hear you, you mentioned that. I don't permaculture is nothing. Permaculture design is nothing like a blank canvas for an artist, mm-hmm. or the new page in the pen for the mystery writer. Is actually a whole lot there happening going on that creativity, I think, is working to the best of it that you can and seeing it and understanding it. So a lot of these conversations that new permaculturalists have with, oh, you could do this. Oh, why don't you just do oranges? You could do so-and-so. You can't for whatever reason. The frost hits minus 15, there's not enough water, the slope's inappropriate, the work level's too high. So you can't actually generate these masses, wonderful ideas for this site. What you can do is generate masses of wonderful ideas for livelihood from that site, but that's not the same thing as the design. The windbreaks will be preset, the slope's preset. The water movement, you can store it, manage it, build soils, everything. But even that, your creativity for building soils is probably going to go whether you're going to use animal manures or you're going to increase your compost, which is my humic acid, acid, you know, matter, get much, much more water-holding stuff into the soil and protect them from desiccation. That's not creative, that's just good. Yep, yep. bloody balanced permaculture with knowledge of what you're doing <coughs> and yep. able to see it get darker and richer over the years and the plants look finer. Creative? I don't know. Creative yeah. is being able to help that farmer or person meet some of their financial stuff, meet their needs, reduce mm-hmm. their footprint, um, develop another way of seeing or being. Mm-hmm. But I don't think... It's how good your knowledge is about permaculture and your ability to draw over a wide range, I think, of examples and places. Say, yes, no. So someone said to me recently, how about we've got all these tunnels, six of them, in these refugee camp in Kurdistan. We can do aquaponics or we can do nursery. And I said, right, how good are poly houses when the temperature hits 15 degrees? 50 degrees centigrade. Mm-hmm. How good will the fish die? Will the plants die? What happens when they hit 15 degrees with no protection? Mm. So that was a good idea and very creative. However, look at those conditions because mm. we don't want to play with people's lives. Yep, yep, mm-hmm. yep. So creativity, I think, is often mistaken as I've got a good idea that they could do, where better creativity is thinking a systems approach on what's really going to yeah, thrive yeah. there and work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disappointing for people who want to do dramatic <laughs> and wonderful things. Yeah, well, maybe disappointing mm. at first, but I think a lot richer and more exciting in, in reality mm. once you once you go there. And I think often, um, you know, if you think it's time to, to just 
insert some creative brainstorming or whatever the other option is mm. is just to tune more deeply into the reality of what's going on um, actually and what, one one way in which I do see you being creative and it came back to some of what you were talking about when you teach at the analysis phase of design which was you, the way you use questions mm. and in a way what it sounded like was you were particularly when you're working with um, participants on on courses and whatnot who are, are doing a design process for their own property you're asking them questions and they already know the answers to those questions but you're kind of giving them a framework in, in which that helps them kind of put that stuff they already know into a into a form you know into, into a kind of a usable framework or picture that that, that then lets the a design emerge so that's strategic questioning yeah and that is towards an end. Mm -hmm. So if I see a student's presented me with a design and on the east they've represented a mountain range and they've looked up a chart for their area and the sun comes up at 6 o'clock in winter and sometime in summer, Mm -hmm. I say to them, yeah, sure, but that's good. You've looked it up, you've found that in the way. Mm -hmm. What's that you're going to do in the morning? Ah. So it is to create thinking and also encourage them to ask a question to create thinking. Yes. Yep. So think of a question, yep. a fairly difficult one, something's worrying you, a bit sort of indigestion, but also thinking of a response. Mm-hmm. And then if they know all those questions, I get tougher and harder. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not easy on them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's the sunny side, so that's a something, so that's a something. And what about this? Yeah. Yep. But it mustn't be an interrogation. Yeah, and I'm, sh- I'm sure on the occasions when you've, worked in more of a you know a, a design consultant or, or a design process supporter you bring that um, flavor and and um, in a way facilitate the process of design rather than you know being it and, and, and mm. dropping it in and, and using questions and so on to help the people you're working with to to be inside the process with mm. you and, draw, and kind of draw it out of mm. of them which is fantastic uh, well, yeah, last, the last thing I picked up on or jumped out for me, I mean, there would have, you know, there's a lot of things there, but this is the stuff that, that really got, got my attention, was you were talking about that, the idea of, of new, was it, yeah, the nutrient yeah. energy, water work. Protection. Protection. Mm. So NUP, is it? NUP. Mm. Um, and as you were talking about that, I, I, can, I hadn't heard of that, and I think that's a, an example of something you're very good at, which is you know giving simple um, ideas that people can grasp immediately, and that and, and that you know for the simplicity of the idea and the acronym, it actually has the power to to prevent a lot of pain, you know, and to avoid a lot of mistakes and dead ends and planting things that die and all the rest. And as you were giving different examples, I I was thinking about well, really, it, what it seemed like you were getting at was the idea of making sure the the, the layout, the configuration, the form, the thing you plant or, or, or do making, just making sure it fits, it fits with its context, um, which is the crux of, you know, of, of, um, of, of successful moves in a design process is, is making sure that the, the form of, of whatever is, is emerging is, come, is emerging out of the reality of the situation, not from the book or the mm-hmm. mind or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah? That's yep, fair. that's about it. It's it's the human mind will jump to what I want to do here is. Yep, yep. So instead of saying to every student, well, where's the water? Mm. Well, are, they, are the deer going to come and eat at all? Mm. What's going to happen here? You know, what? Tell me about it. I use that simple act. act and it may not be perfect Mm -hmm. but it will lead to some sort of survival and ability so you might say why not soil and buildings Mm -hmm. because the work would be an assessment of soil and the soils I just get them to look at what colour they want them to be in two years and the state of the vegetation growing on it right yeah yeah, remember Mollison said don't test the soil test the thing you're putting in your mouth Right, the yeah, orange or the, the vegetable plants, yeah. or something. Yeah. And if you test that for nutrition or minerals yep. or macro minerals, the soil will be right. Yep. Because the change in state for some minerals from in the soil through a leaf is considerable. 
Yes. So we should. But I'm saying to them, okay, look at the colour, look at the texture, mm. smell it, see what's growing, what is the change in vegetation over those years, yep. Yep. what succeeded what, yep. where yep. are we going? And I'm very strong <coughs> in succession. I'd even have an orchard succession. Yep. I put through some basic old plums that grow well first year. Yep, yep. And by the third year, you've got a higher value tree. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just, I just love succession. I think it's a fabulous thing. Yep. But your first plants need to be as big and yield a product. They're not just something that sit there for a while and do nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What really worries me about it is that at the end, students leave the course ah. without a knowledge of how to implement and cost. Yes. And implementing is not the same as designing. So they might go and tell a farmer to do Zone 5, whereas really to get the house built and the food supply going is immediately important so that you're comfortable and you're warm and you've got food and from that you can operate to do Zone 5. Yep, yep. Or that they're planting crops in the wrong season because they're in a hurry or don't know. So there's an enormous need. I wouldn't call it a boot camp you know, cutting the wing of a chicken so it doesn't mm. fly away. There's something else about taking designs and working carefully mm. through implementation mm. with students who want to implement or who are designers and learning how to cost them and time mm. them. Mm. You can give them a bit, but in the end it would take too long. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, I mean, that's a, kind of a can of worms, I reckon. Mm. In, a, in a way, it's a, hu it's a huge issue. I mean, par partially, I think, touching on the, the first point we discussed was this idea of... Um, of making a start on a, on a design at a high level and actually commencing implementation where design and implementation are bound up quite closely together. But yeah, like you say, to actually realistically bring people into that process um, in a, in a two-week period or, or whatever, how, how, how does that work? Maybe that's one of the you know, challenges for, for, the, for the evolution of permaculture. Yeah. It would be interesting to have some sort of documentation, and maybe this is what Nice is doing, mm -hmm. Nice Neve from Portugal, where she is actually looking at the implementation. Mm -hmm. I've had Gary, who did the film of Cam, of um, Afghanistan, yeah. film the four places I did, and I walked through them to see what worked, what didn't. Uh -huh. So one is nearly 40 years, 35 years old. Mm -hmm. And the other one is three, the youngest is three years old. Right, right. And what worked and what didn't and how did it yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. And so in each one, the claims we make for a permaculture design, are they true? Are they valid? Yeah, will yeah. it work? Yeah. Well, I'm quite satisfied it will. Mm. If you get a good course and you apply it without any creativity, yeah. you'll have something pretty good. Yes, yeah. And that might be disappointing to some people. And, but I think it's really, really important. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, if you wanted to go into depths as a designer and an implementer, you'd have to link it to patterns in nature. Yeah, yep. So you'd have to have all your orders clearly understood that mm -hmm. you were looking at an original landscape of very fragile, uh, an order five or six, or a more permanent landscape. And then you have to know how to do your paths and roads, mm -hmm. so that you're yeah. doing a dendritic pattern where each one is half the mm -hmm. length and size yeah, of the yeah. other, and then at the end you have a different product somewhere yeah. Yeah. or thing from what different ecology from what you had in the beginning. At its simplest, it's a garden path that will walk two people, mm -hmm. and at the end you've just got stepping stones. Yep. That's its simplest. But yep. if you were doing it with all your plants at maturity as well, then design is beginning to become a very deep and wonderful <laughs> thing. Right. Yeah. But think if you could do it, Dan. Yeah, yeah, no, it's... Your designs would be exquisite. Yeah, you, and that, that reminder. And, and that's right, that it get, does get pretty deep and, mm. and complex when you're bringing together mm. designing and implementing and, and patterning. Yeah. Um, Especially the function and orders of pattern. Yeah, yeah. Getting the pattern right so or function in that environment yep. and getting the order right so it works at maturity as well as when it's new. Yeah. That's yep. hard stuff. Yeah. Yep. But fun if you're bored with your permaculture course. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's great. Mm. Um hey what well, before you finished I, I wanted to um, remind you or sh share a story that you, you star in. And there was a there was a maybe a closing point I wanted to explore with you as well. But the the story was about a, a fifteen acre property south of, of Melbourne in Gippsland that you you visited. This is when I 
was, I think it was the second um, project that I took on in a, in a semi-professional a design project that I took on in a semi-professional fashion, so whatever that was, 10 or 11 years ago. And it was interesting to me because I, um, I had you on the site and I, I, I sat down <coughs> with both Jeff Lawton and then sat on a separate occasion with David Holmgren and put the contour map of the property in front of them and, and spoke them through it. And it was just fascinating to realise that there's no stock um, approach that I guess you know, I might have expected new, being new to permaculture that any experienced designer teacher and, and here I'm talking of course about three of the more experienced um, in, in the game would, would, would start in the same place and say the same thing now what happened was uh, Jeff Lawton basically went to the top of the property and then just looked from boundary to boundary along the contour it was, it ran, it was in a valley this property um, and, he, and he found the highest contour line that went from one boundary to the other without hitting anything, basically without hitting a tennis court or a building or a big tree, and said, you know, this is the highest point in the landscape you could put a swale. And so for him, that was his crystallization point. You know, that, you'd do that first, and then the design would fall out from there. I, I put it in front of David Holmgren and have a chat with him. Um, his attention was immediately drawn to the, the creek running through the valley, the, the the bottom of the property, and he said, "You know, this is the you know this is the highest nutrient line in the property. You know, you've got huge amounts of water and nutrient moving through this, um, and you know he he was they weren't it wasn't like they were demonstrating their best practice design um, process, but they were just just throwing some ideas around, and of course it was really illustrative and, and, and fascinating to see where their attention went. But he he started to throw around some ideas around. Oh, you realise that you know you could." California redwood and this that and mentioned a few species that would cope with those swampy wet conditions and and enable you to utilize and catch and store um, that that nutrient source and then of course you were actually on the property um, and I remember your your perspective there and I think probably well unlike the others you, you actually met the um, the client um, the owner of the property die and so had a you know, and not to mention the actual property but your 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 kind of inclination or where where you went with it was suggesting that of the 15 acres die kind of fence off several acres around the house and you know garden that intensively and let the rest go back to nature effectively let the rest of it come come back into a, a zone five situation and i'll always remember always remember that and um yeah, and I was I was meaning to ask you, was that kind of, you know, and I think it reflects a, a different, quite a, a deeper kind of orientational thing as well. Is, is that would you would you have always sort of had that inclination, or like earlier in your career, or do you think that that as you've got you know gone along, you're more likely to? There's a deep discomfort with the fact of how much of every country is destroyed by humans. Yep. And I remember Mollison saying we need only use 6% of all the land. Uh-huh. And when you look at sheep and cattle walking around, one for 10 acres, one for 5 acres, you think what a terrible thing to destroy the forest to do that. And I suppose I'm thinking that there was an area between the creek and the slope yep. that you could do very satisfactory and productive permaculture yep, yep. and give back to nature, to restore. And I think I was already aware then of uncertain climatic future. Well, I was. I had been since (coughs) the 70s, actually, in the Club of Rome, and I believed it immediately. I didn't have a moment's denial or anything. So that I'd been aware, unless we restore the original systems, they're the ones that are going to buffer everything. And you don't have to use every bit of the land. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad I shared that, and it was really lovely to... To, to have those thoughts. But today, if possible, I put 30 to 60% of every piece of land yep. I'm designing yep. back to natural systems because humans cannot fix the problem, whereas nature can fix a lot of it mm-hmm. if we give nature a chance. And I'm sorry making nature a bit like a human, but mm-hmm. you watch what happens given half a chance and it's fantastic. Yeah, no, so if we work with that yeah, yeah. instead of thinking we can do this. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, it's I, a conviction. I, another, another discussion we can have over a beer or for another time, but mm-hmm. is I'm, increase, I'm increasingly finding the whole, you know, even the idea of, of nature mimicking systems, that kind of talk, because what it firstly, it, to mimic something, 
there needs to be two things, you know, the yeah. things doing the mimicking and the thing being mimicked. Yeah. And the thing doing the mimicking is obviously humans. But, you know, you've just got yeah. this dichotomy from the beginning when the point really is to um, for, for humans to acknowledge that they're actually, mm. part, they've always yeah. been part of nature so effectively to, in a way, mimic ourselves, yeah. our real selves. Yeah. Anyway, um, I wanted just to close with, I remember the last words you said on, on the first PDC we, we ran together. People like you in the courses who remember what I said, Dan. <laughs> well, I, you know, there's, there's, there's a, for me to various teaching. There's various things you've said over the years that have, have stayed with me, and um, it was it was it was just something around you know, and, and everything else aside, I you know, I'd, I'd, I'll leave you all. I encourage you in, in nurturing a um, just a, a river, an, an attitude of, of reverence and awe. To, you know, towards this beautiful um, Mother Nature that, that we're part of, and I wanted to yeah, touch and maybe end on that. I mean, one thing I've been looking into recently is that um, in spheres outside permaculture, there's been a movement from focusing on on a product or a result or a thing to to, to focusing on the process that generated that thing. And in more recent times, with developments like theory, you and and, and other stuff. There's, there's been a second transition and attention from the process. You know, now a lot of these fields, and some of them are to do with producing car, you know, cars and whatever, they're very different from permaculture or software development. But well, maybe not so much software development, but moving from uh, the process to the, the, the source, or the, added, the, the deep attitude and the deep matrix of assumptions that people bring to, to the process. And I, I wonder if permaculture is going to go through a similar evolution where I feel like at the moment it's moving from being kind of caught up and focused on the, on the thing, you know, the garden, the, the landscape, the photos, um, the swale, the herb spiral, to, to a deeper exploration of what are the processes, what's a healthy process that generates adapted systems and delivers on the ethics and principles of permaculture. And I, and I wonder over time whether that will move into um, acknowledging or exploring the idea that the, the deeper assumptions and just the overall attitude orientation we have um, will, of course, have a huge impact on the process, whatever the process is, and, and maybe is as important as getting the details of the, the process right. So I'll, I'll let you have the last word, Ro, but I'd love it if, you, if you'd be happy to share any, any closing comments or reflections I on guess that. as permaculturists, we don't have the last word. Yeah. Nature has the last word. <laughs> Whatever we do and manipulate and play with and break. Yeah. And I guess it is something about going back to that terrible, corny phrase, but working with nature, and I'd like to finish with a question with you, Dan. Increasingly, I'm sensitive to any destruction of life. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather brush a mosquito off than smack it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to cut an earthworm in half. Snails get a trip to the tip, but I can't crush snails anymore. So the more I'm engaged, and the more I'm observing, the more I'm aware, the more life of everything has value, therefore the less I can go at it saying we'll just clear this and do that and get rid of that. So my recent experience is removing a couple of trees and one of them was probably going, it was split down the middle, it's probably going to smash and break. But when I saw the, over a building, but when I saw that tree came down and I hated the sound of the chainsaw, but when I heard, saw the birds circling round it, looking for perching, mm. there can't be another tree taken down unless another one's fulfilling its function just as well, even if it has a different product. So this not wanting to upset any of the natural systems, including those birds that circled and circled and were calling out for their trees. So you end up with a tenderness where you start thinking, I don't even want to hear a chainsaw. Mm. And yet I burn firewood, but mm. I collect a lot. But it's something to do with this growing appreciation as you embed it in these systems for what is and what's growing. And things like so-called weeds, you know, saying to someone the other day, don't take that stuff out. Mm. It'll be full of little birds. You mm. have to plant something similar there mm. and get it up and then slowly remove. So I guess gung-ho-ness and 
it's it's you know it's hard to talk about but that deep deep feeling that sort of these things all matter mm. and not wanting to be part of the destruction of any of it mm. so i don't know in the years since you've been working where you are but that's that's where i am it's getting harder and harder. If I live another 10 years, I will be walking around like a Janist, you know. I'll have <laughs> brushing the ground to brush the ants away and a mask around my face so I don't breathe in a bacterium or something and kill it. It's getting to a degree of sensitivity that, mm. yeah, that is painful. To see land like Kurdistan or bombed land like Afghanistan mm. is an, actually a very great pain. Mm. So that's where I, I'm ending up. Mm. It's not where I thought I'd be, mm. but it's where I'm ending up. Mm. And then that belief that permaculture in care of the earth and care of people is to create situations under which life and ability can flourish. So a person can flourish because of the process that you live and around them. They can somehow be themselves mm. and the environment can grow because you've helped with the conditions that enable. Oh, mm. permaculture is the enabling science. Mm. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Bit funny, yeah. So I guess that's where I am, mm. and I don't usually talk about it. So this has been sort of the first time I think I've really said, as it gets more precious, the doing of damage gets harder. Mm. But you have to every day be looking at clouds and the little birds at your daughter's school, mm. the little robins and mm. the whole thing. Mm. Mm, yes, the, the more... Can't let yourself get toughened to the importance of the little and the yeah. beautiful in life. The, the more, the more connected, mm. the more the, the pain, the harm. Mm. It wouldn't have it otherwise. Yeah. Because it's so wonderful. Yeah. 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 That was great, Dan. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Ro. Okay.